It's really great to see you all. Uh, welcome. Um, I'm really conscious of not wanting to spoil your day today. Uh, when we are preaching in church on a Sunday, there are two traps that I don't want us to fall into. One is that we always just say nice things. And you go home and think, well, that was nice. But on the other hand, there are times when we have to be careful not to preach so depressingly that you leave church in a worse state than you did when you came in. And so I want to give you a forewarning straight away that the chapters we're going to look at in the Bible today are grim. These chapters are among the darkest chapters in the whole of the Bible. So I don't want to ruin your day and I hope that as we go through some of the things we're going to talk about today um, we find some encouragement. So more about that uh, in a moment. If the book of Judges was a sandwich, which it isn't, if the book of Judges was a sandwich, I mean an English sandwich with two slices of bread and some bacon in the middle or something, you know, then um, what we're doing is a little bit unusual because we're eating the bread first and then eating the, sam- the, the bacon or the filling. Uh, Ian, we ate the first slice with Ian when he did the introduction. What we're doing at the moment is eating the second slice on the other end of the sandwich because we're looking at the conclusion. And when we finish today, uh, not next week because it's Cafe Church, but then we'll get into eating the, the meat, the fillet, whatever you like on your sandwich, cheese, egg, whatever you want to call it. That's the middle bit of the book. Um, so today we're finishing off eating the other slice. Okay, We're in the conclusion. The conclusion at the end of the book of Judges is in two parts. You know this now. We looked at chapters 17 and 18 already, which demonstrated for us how badly Israel was messing up their religion. What we're going to try and look at today, and it is a tall order, is we're going to look at chapters 19, 20 and 21. And we're going to think the second part of that conclusion is messed up morality. And of course, it's not an accident that the author writes his conclusion in that way. Because, in the end, what you believe in your heart will shape the way you live in your day-to-day life. You get that? What you believe in your heart will shape the way you live. The Bishop of Worcester uh, writing in the British press characterised the the kind of climate in the UK with this sentence he said we live in a society where it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you believe that it doesn't matter it's a great quote isn't it wish I thought that it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you believe that it doesn't matter That's the kind of culture we live in. Actually, I want to suggest to you that what you think about the world, yourself, where we come from, where we're going, if there's a God, what is he like? All of of your beliefs about those things will shape the way that you and I then live. The author's point in Judges, in this conclusion, the second slice on the sandwich, is that 
their relationship with God fell apart and as a result they descended as a society into the most degrading and confusing moral failure. What they believed affected how they lived. So these last three chapters are very dark. They're quite disturbing. One of the reasons Hannah said to me, what are we reading in church today? And I actually didn't want us to read this chapter while the children were in the room. This chapter has within it gang rape, a brutal murder, the dead body being chopped up and the body parts being shipped around the country for the shock value. I don't really... It's hard to read these in public, these, these words. They would make an X-rated film. What happens here in Israel's history becomes known later as the Days of Gibeah, a kind of legendary low point in their history. People refer to this time as, man, the Days of Gibeah. I'm glad I wasn't living then. On the other hand, I think it's important for us to highlight at the beginning here, I I don't want you ever to think that the Bible is somehow squeamish. The Bible never closes its eyes and looks the other way. The Bible does not pretend that all is well with the world. I, I think... It is, a, it is an incredible thing that these chapters are even in the Bible because this is the, this is the word of God facing the brokenness and dysfunctionality and tragic nature of human life and looking it right in the eye. You might ask, why, why are we even looking at this book? You could have like preached something nice to us. <laughs> um, let me underline at the beginning how important this is I want to show you two scriptures in our church we we believe what the Bible says about itself and for example in the New Testament the Apostle Paul writes these words all scripture all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. I underline the words all scripture there. We believe that in our church. That means that these chapters have something to say to us. These are not just the words of some person writing history. These are God's words for us to learn something from. In another place Paul says something perhaps more profound. Here's another verse, Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Might not be as familiar to us. Paul writes, everything, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have, what does it say? Hope. I said I didn't want to spoil your day. All this, everything that was written in the past is written to encourage us. There's things here for us to learn and they're there to provide that we might have hope. So while these chapters are a bit ugly and gruesome, they are given to us in the end by God himself for us to learn from.
And in the end, hopefully, I want to point all of us to the great hope that's found in Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Two questions to begin with, okay? Yeah, I haven't put you off, have I? Well, you're all still here, so that's a good start. Two questions. Number one, what's the big idea? It's always good to just stop and have a little think about what's the big idea. One commentator I came across this week said this, this episode in the book of Judges represents the supreme demonstration of the canonization of Israel. Let me explain what that means. Listen, when the Israelites came into the land of Canaan, they were meant to clean it up. They were meant to be the brush that swept wickedness away and put it in the bin. They were meant to be the light that drove out the darkness. They were meant to be the clean, refreshing water to replace the muddy sludge. They were meant to be the antidote to all the poison of evil that was gripping the land of Canaan. This story was meant to have a happy ending. They went in there to sort it out. These are the people of God. Their job was to show how God's design for life and society brings peace and purpose and harmony and fulfilment. Jewish people refer to this as shalom, wholeness, peace, harmony, well-being. The Canaanites had been sacrificing their young children in fire to appease their imaginary gods. And the living God, the creator, is like, that is enough. I had enough of this. Go and purge that land and show the world my glory. That was Israel's job. And what the book of Judges sadly shows is that instead of driving the Canaanites out and purging the land, the people of God become Canaanites. It is tragic. It is shocking. They didn't heal the poison, they drank it. They didn't overcome the evil, they sank to the very lowest depths of it. When I first came to Yorkshire from Lancashire, People would say funny things like, you can take the boy out of Lancashire, but you can't take Lancashire out of the boy. Do you know that phrase? I don't even know what that means, but... I think Israel here has a strange twist on that idea. You can take the Israelites to Canaan, but you can't take Canaan out of their hearts. Let me give you just a couple of applications to think about. Firstly, I I want you to sense the great shock that is implied in the Bible here, and it's this. There's not that much difference between the wicked and the religious. There is not actually that much difference between the wicked and the religious. I don't think many people realized that that is the shock of the scriptures the real problem is that we have selfish hearts that rebel against god and that means that it's possible for a non-religious person to be selfish and to avoid god 
And it means that a religious person can be selfish and even use their religion to avoid God. The issue is our hearts. Sometimes these are just two expressions of the same heart problem. What religious and non-religious people need is someone who can cleanse Canaan from our bloodstream. That is what all of us need. And the question the book of Judges raises is who is able to cleanse Canaan from inside of our own hearts? Israel couldn't do it. Who can? Secondly, the relevance of this book surely is that the people of God are meant to be a force for good in this world. But if the world and its values pollute the people of God, the people of God become less than useless, don't they? The challenge for us here is that Well, the question is, do we impact our culture or are we just drinking in and becoming like our culture? Do we shape it or do we just reflect it? That's the big idea. The Canaanization of Israel. What a tragedy. And as we go through these chapters, hopefully you'll get that underlined. Second question, very important question. What's the plot? Um, last night I was watching Match of the Day like you do on a Saturday night and actually on BBC One after Match of the Day there was a film called Anchorman with Will Ferrell I don't know if you've ever seen it it's quite a crude film it's very funny it's a bit crude wouldn't be to everyone's taste does anyone know the film Anchorman very culturally aware church okay big hand going up at the back there Ron Burgundy is a newsreader. It's like 1970s. He's a very sexist character. And anyway, he made famous the catchphrase, something happens, and he sits back, he looks at the camera, and he says, well, that escalated quickly. That really got out of hand fast. That's his catchphrase. That escalated quickly. You might hear people saying that. Ron Burgundy said it first. I've actually entitled this sermon with Ron Burgundy's catchphrase, that escalated quickly. Because this is the plot. One couple. One couple. One couple, a man and a woman, having problems in their relationship. And the whole thing descends into civil war that almost wipes out a whole tribe in Israel. What happens to this couple is like a spark in a barrel of gunpowder. Israel is like an explosion waiting to go off. Along the way, we will see dysfunctional relationships, a fragmented and unhospitable society, violent sexual sin, out of control men and vulnerable frightened women dishonest politics 
revenge that goes too far, pragmatic solutions that only make things worse, and all the way through this spiral, God is completely or largely ignored. God, in these chapters, God is pretty much silent. No one really seeks him. And God himself seems to almost quietly withdraw and leave them to reap the mess that they have sown. This, I, was, I was thinking about this. This whole sorry descent is well summed up by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. In the book of Romans, Paul actually is making the argument that there's no difference between a religious person self-righteous religious person and a, and a person who's not religious and this is what Paul says you could apply this to this period in history there is no one righteous not even one there is no one who understands there is no one who seeks God all have turned away they have together become worthless there is no one who does good not even one their throats are open graves their tongues practice deceit the poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What a, what a profound comment on, on these very chapters. So the book of Judges ends with Israel looking like a ragged shadow of what they should have been. And the point of all of this is that Israel has become Canaan. Their biggest enemy is not outside of them anymore. Their biggest enemy is the sin that lurks within their own hearts. They actually end up almost destroying themselves. It's unbelievable and shocking. I don't think I've ever preached a talk here where we covered three chapters in one go. When we were going through Ephesians, it took us all day to do one verse. <laughs> so I'm hoping that we can cover chapter 19, 20, and 21 in one hit. Is that ambitious? And hopefully we'll get home on time. There's a lot that goes on in these three chapters. There's a lot that goes on in this chapter. What I'd like to do with you is to just follow the logic of the author and ask the question, what does it look like when God's people have Canaan in their bloodstream? You get that question? What does it look like when people ignore God? And there's a lot of different things that we could say. So to keep it simple, I want to just use two headings. Under the first one, we'll just think about relationships that have gone wrong. And then under the second heading, I just want to highlight some of the aspects of moral confusion that are clear in the story. Only some of them. There's loads more we could say. But that's where we'll go, okay? So relationships gone wrong. 
And then we'll think about moral confusion. And we've got two or three points under each one. And we'll basically just walk through these three chapters under those headings. So first of all, relationships gone wrong. The first thing I want you to notice in this story is that no one has a name. Did you notice that? I don't think that's an accident. For two reasons. I think in one sense the author is saying, do you know what? These are just your typical average people. There was a Levite. Hello? And he's representative because everybody was pretty much like this. You get that? But I think their namelessness and facelessness is also a literary device because what it does is it dehumanizes these people. Many of the people here in these chapters, as we'll see, are such a messy, ambiguous mixture. They do some good things and some bad things. Many of them are both victims and perpetrators. They hurt other people. They get hurt by other people. These are precious people, but they are, they're like nameless examples of how tragic human life can often be. They're nameless, faceless examples. Anonymous and ambiguous. I think the author is trying to say something to us about the way sin defaces and dehumanizes people. They don't even have names. They're statistics. You, you get that point. The first thing I want to say then is relationships gone wrong. I want you to notice the selfishness and immorality in these verses. The story begins with a Levite taking a concubine, not a proper wife, a lover. The Levites were meant to be the priests. I think you know that. What does he want? What does this Levite priest want? Sex with no strings attached? A little bit on the side? The fact that he's taking a concubine, we don't read that he, does he have a wife? What does she think about him taking a part-time lover? Or is he the kind of man who's trying to be macho and thinks that there's some kind of status attached to having concubines, almost like, you know, owning property? Is this some kind of Canaanite status symbol? The more concubines you've got, the more of a man you are. What does he want? The, the author's kind of, he just tells the story as it is. He doesn't really make a comment on it. But then the concubine. It says in verse 2, she was unfaithful to him. In the original Hebrew, the literal translation of that is, she played the harlot. She was unfaithful to him. The phrase could imply prostitution. It may mean that she was just not happy with the man. Maybe she resented being a second-class wife, in inverted commas. Maybe she wanted him to want her and her alone. Anyway, for whatever reason, she leaves him and she, run back, she runs back to her daddy. 
leaving him and if he, if he does want this concubine to stay to symbol he's humiliated isn't he now the concubine that he was showing off to all his mates has run back to her dad and what on earth is he playing at when it says in verse 2 after she'd been there for four months I mean does, is he just busy does he love her four months standoff what is that all about eventually whatever it is that he does want overcomes him and he feels that he has to have her back so he sets off with his two donkeys and his servant I mean what what do you think does he love this woman four months it's not quick is it well we'll see shortly what he's really made of anyway the dad seems overjoyed they welcome him gladly the, the daughter seems to open the door and the father-in-law prevails upon the man to stay with them actually I mean it's almost comical we'll get to that what, why is the dad so pleased is, is he pleased because he wants them to be reconciled or is he worried about the shame if his daughter has turned to prostitution she's never going to be married again to anyone else is the dad kind of worried about the shame of it all? Maybe he thinks the guy's come back to ask for the wedding dowry back, I don't know. She wasn't that good of a concubine, can I have my thumbs back please? He, anyway, he welcomes him in, he's as nice as pie. Here are two people, uh, the Levite and his concubine, who seem to be using each other for their own ends. Would you agree with that? It's considered old-fashioned these days, but marriage was originally God's idea. And sex is designed by God as a gift to be expressed within the confines of marriage. Lifelong commitment that involves public promises unconditional love it is both a joy and a fight but these two are living selfish sinful lives rather than building their lives on God's ways they seem to put all of their hopes in one another for pleasure or status or whatever it is they're looking for and then disappoint one another and it all falls apart selfish and immoral then there's this comical clash of wills between the dad and the Levite the man keeps getting up early to pack his bags and leave and the, and the father's like no no stay another day please we've got plenty of wine and drink hospitality is a big thing in many cultures and it would have been considered rude for him to refuse hospitality and leave but eventually by day four and a half he's had enough hasn't he (laughs) come on I've stayed now long enough we're going and the very fact that he leaves in the afternoon is actually the catalyst that causes the rest of the story to unfold in the way it does I want you to notice that the woman is portrayed as some kind of pawn in a game 
She has no active involvement in any decision that's made here. The man is portrayed as quite callous in the end and unfeeling. Is he a master or is he her husband? Is she a wife or a bit of property? Neither the dad or the Levites seem to care very much about the woman herself. And the author is just silent on whether she has any say at all in these men just passing her around from one to the other. Secondly, under the relationships gone wrong heading, I want you to notice in Israel a distinct lack of community. Let's walk on in the story. Anyway, they leave. The fact that they leave late in the day means that the servants suggest that they stay in what became Jerusalem. Jebus or Jebus, I don't really know how you say that. It is very, very significant. Verse 12. That the Levite master replies, Over my dead body, we're not going to Jebus, this phone is there, mate. We'll get our heads kicked in there. That's basically what he's saying, isn't it? We are not going to a place where a bunch of foreigners live because we won't be safe. We need to stick with our own kind. Let's carry on and go to Gibeah or Rama. The Israelites there will be safe amongst our own brothers and sisters. Isn't it ironic? When they get to Gibeah, what do they find? stone cold nothing it was a custom in those days to wait in the square there were no travel lodges there were no premier inns if you wanted hospitality you would go and wait in the square inside the city gate and the idea was that someone would come and hospitality would be shown people cared for each other (coughs) doors were open, fires would be lit food would be shared stories would be told What makes it worse here is that this guy isn't poor. He doesn't actually need anything. All they need is a bed. He tells the old man who eventually comes, we've got the straw, the bread and the wine. All we need is somewhere to lie down and sleep. Nothing. You get the sense that people in this village, it's like something out in the Wild West, isn't it? Everyone maybe twitching the kids, have a look outside, say, not my job. I'm not going to show kindness. There's a kind of unhospitable selfishness about the place. They came here to their own brothers and the door slammed in their face. This is Israel. And the community has broken down. Let me read to you from Leviticus. This is what their own law from God said to the Israelites. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner who resides among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as you love yourself, for you were once foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I don't think they'd read that that morning, had they? These people are not foreigners, they're their brothers and sisters. No one even opened their front door to say, hello, come in. Thirdly, People are treated as objects. When This is one of the saddest passages in the Bible. It's actually an outsider from the Levite's own home in Ephraim 
he welcomes them and this old man takes them into his home and ominously tells them just whatever you do don't spend the night in the square he knows doesn't he and as they settle down for the evening I don't know I imagine them sitting around the fire enjoying a nice glass of red wine maybe sharing stories about Ephraim where they're both from hey do you know so and so no And then there is what is described here as a pounding on the door. A group of thugs demanding that the old man send out the Levites so that they can rape him. The way the author constructs this scene is deliberately designed to evoke the memory of Genesis chapter 19 I think you probably already get a sense of deja vu the author's point here is that Israel has become the new Sodom this already happened in Genesis 19 with Lot the Levite thought the Canaanite foreigners in Jebus would harm them but this happens in Israel Israel has become the new Sodom. And it is hard for us even to compute what happens next. The old man goes out to reason with this mob. And he says, don't do this vile thing. It is vile, not just because it's horrible for the individuals concerned. It is an attack on community. This is destructive, dislocating behaviour. But in the end, the old man says, take my daughter and the man's concubine. The ethical issues here are very complex. There's something here about sexuality being a tool to express power domination over others why do the men of the town want the Levite and not his servant for example is this their violent way of showing unwanted visitors who's in charge I don't know but at the same time this is a culture where honour and hospitality are so important the ultimate embarrassment here is to fail to look after the guests that have come under the roof of your house and certainly in this culture it seems that failure to protect your guests is actually worse than protecting your own daughter I don't think we can get our heads around that but that's what's going on here it would be an awful shame for this man to fail in that sense of honour we can't imagine that but anyway as that debate's going on the Levite himself seems to interrupt the argument and open the door and shove his concubine outside what, what, what is he doing is, is he saying if you want to get at me you can have her Is he reacting somehow to her leaving him? 
Nowhere in this story does this woman get any say. And how on earth does this Levite go to sleep that night with his half-wife being abused outside? The next time he opens the door, she's lying there on the threshold, dead. It's, it's an amazing touch from the author, isn't it? When he opens the door, she's on the threshold with her hand reaching out. She's been raped, abused and then discarded and in the morning she reaches for the door and can't get in. One writer says, of all the characters in scripture, this woman is the least appearing at the beginning and close of a story that rapes her. She is alone in a world of men. Neither the other characters or the narrator recognize her humanity. She is property, object, tool, and literary device. Without name or speech or power, she has no friends to aid her in life or mourn her in death. Passing her back and forth amongst themselves, the men of Israel have obliterated her totally and the man when he, I mean he comes out of the door and he speaks to her as if she's a dog get up come on it's time to go what planet is he on realising she's dead he slaps her on his donkey he takes her home cuts her up and sends her limbs all around the country by FedEx he treats her like a piece of meat This is how low Israel has gone. People are treated like objects. We, we would never be like this, would we? Or would we? I think one of the challenges preaching this is that it is so easy for me, for all of us, to sit there and say, oh, that's awful. We'd... But the thinking behind this kind of behaviour, it isn't a million miles from our own culture, is it? Every single day we seem to read of the old and the very young being abused. Rotherham has been a case in point. In the last 15 years, our UK health services will have performed the best part of 3 million abortions. Our culture so prizes the idea of everyone doing what is right in their own eyes that there's even pressure now to legalise euthanasia in our own culture. And, I, and in terms of treating women in particular as objects, what about the tacit acceptance in our culture? Internet pornography is... is this is a physical demonstration of that kind of thinking but is Canaan in our bloodstream 
relationally. Sin is selfish. Communities become disorientated and alienated. People are treated like objects. Everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. This is the canonization of Israel. Let me um, move to the other side. I hope I'm not ruining your day. Moral confusion. We'll just carry on walking through the story. Let me show you this under a different heading. I just want to pick out four things. First of all, helplessness. Uh, the, The end of chapter 19 is very instructive. I mean, people get these little parcels from FedEx with a little message from the Levite guy. And the whole nation is just like... The the last verse, everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been done. And that last sentence, think about it, consider it, tell us what to do. It's, It's like... The panicked cry, isn't it? it? You know, like when you have a crisis and everyone's running around in a blind panic and someone shouts, do something, do something. That's the sense of that last verse, isn't it? One writer says, their words are a picture of outrage mixed with confusion, impotence and inability to know what to do. If everyone is used to doing what is right in his or her own eyes, how can anyone get a grip on the situation the point is sin always makes us helpless we, it, this is true in our culture isn't it we look out into the world and we go someone do something but no one actually knows what to do a conference is called in chapter 20 and all the tribes gather together And the Levite man is called as a witness. And all the representatives of all the clans ask him to explain this awful thing that's happened. And this leads me on to a second point about moral confusion. The idea of self-deception. Let's just read what the Levite man says about what happened. This is his account. The court are assembled. They ask the man to stand up. The Levite guy, tell us how this awful thing happened. Verse 4, chapter 20. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah and Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. They raped my concubine and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Now all of you Israelites, speak up and give your verdict. At the very least, he's economical with the truth, isn't he? Would it be unfair to call him a liar? <laughs> the way he describes what has happened is just pure spin. To make himself look good and the men of Gibeah look like the wicked men that they were, there's some truth in what he says, but he fails to mention that he's the one who pushed her out the door, doesn't he? Doesn't say that, does he? Go on, get a load of that, love. <laughs> what, what, what planet is this guy on? 
He fails to mention that as a man, he did not lift a finger to protect the so-called love of his life. He paints a picture of himself as the victim. They were trying to kill me. Paul. He does nothing. He's a coward. And he proves himself here to be a liar. Here's the point about self-deception. Generally, this is. He tells publicly a better story about himself than the story that's really true. He changes the narrative of his life to make it look better than it really was. I'm not that bad. I want to say to you here from the scriptures that one of the things that sin will always do to us, it will make us helpless and it will also blind us to the full extent of our own failure to be what we should have been. We tell a better story than the one that is actually true. The men of Gibeah were wicked, but this man is wicked just in a different way. Instead of conquering Canaan, they've been conquered by Canaan. The next part of the story gives us more to ponder. The decision of the court is to ask the Benjaminite tribe to hand over the perpetrators. But the Benjaminite tribe don't want to allow an outsider to criticise one of their our very day, criticising one of our own kind. If we're in this together, if you want them, you'll have to fight us. <laughs> they refuse. They'd rather protect the culprits than bring them to justice. There's a kind of stubbornness that's based on their blood ties. They'd rather stick together than see justice done. And so begins the fury. Chapter 20, which we'll skate over, is the story of the utter crushing of the tribe of Benjamin. And I just want to point this out as we pass. Do you know what the irony, irony, irony is in this story? That the national response to this was unanimous. It was almost spiritual. God had once called them to drive out Canaan. And they never once achieve it. And here they are, utterly unanimous, absolutely zealous in joining together, not to drive out Canaan, but to wipe out one of their own brothers. Why could they not do it at the beginning? It's incredible, in a way, that this one lying, callous Levite galvanizes the whole nation in a way that no other judge in the whole book manages to do. Why is it that we can muster up zeal and enthusiasm to do almost anything except the right thing? At least 75,000 people are killed in this chapter. The tribe of Benjamin is reduced to 600 men living in a cave. Just read with me at the end of chapter 20, verse 46. On that day, 25,000 Benjaminite swordsmen fell. 
All of them valiant fighters, 600 men turned and fled into the desert to the rock of Rimmon where they stayed for four months. And the men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found, all of the towns they came across, they set on fire. It's, it's like totally disproportionate. Revenge gone mad. We've now gone from one woman being brutally raped and murdered to Israel nearly destroying itself. Boy, that escalated quick, didn't that? Here's a third thing, though. In chapter 21, the mood changes. And the Israelites suddenly seem to grasp the enormity of what's just happened. I want you to notice their prayer in chapter 21 and verse 3. The people went to Bethel where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. O Lord, the God of Israel, they cried. Why has this happened to Israel? Do you want to answer that? Why? Why has this happened to Israel? Do, do you feel like if you were God, you just want to like slap them and say, "Why? I'll tell you why. You did it. You bunch of stupid idiots. They're going to God and saying, "Why does this happen? Because you all had your swords unstrapped and you've just slaughtered all your brothers." That's, I mean, isn't it? It's almost comical if it wasn't so tragic and you know what what I I see there in verse 3 is just a little hint that somehow in their depravity they're actually blaming God do you get that oh God why has this happened this is something else that sin does to us friends What do you mean, why? You did it. That's why. It is amazing, you know, how even when we sin against God, the little thought rises in our heart. Do you know, if God didn't want me to do that, he would have stopped me. If if, if God really didn't want me to have done that wicked thing, he surely would have stopped me. If this is anyone's fault, it's God's, you know. It's just. We excuse ourselves and blame God as if our sins are his fault. I think this is one of the things our modern culture often does. How many times have you spoken with people who have said to you, how can you believe in God when there's so much trouble and violence? How can God be a God of love? If there is a God, this is all his fault. One writer says these chapters are a picture of how societies that are not centred on God must function. Worshipping something else other than the true God, deciding what seems right, logical and reasonable in their own eyes, Wondering why things then never seem to get any better, and then deciding that God, if he does exist, can't much care for his people. It's a stupid argument, isn't it? Oh God, why has this happened to us? I'll tell you why. You did it. That's... 
blaming others. Sin makes us helpless. We, we tell a better story than the one that's really true. And we're constantly justifying ourselves, even at the expense of blaming God himself. Fourthly, we're nearly done. Lack of wisdom. I wanted to call this heading stupidity, but I thought that would be a bit rude. Um, it is amazing how one bad decision seems to add to the one before. In chapter 21, the people start feeling sorry for Benjamin. They pray to God. God seems not to answer and so they begin to resort to solving the problem with their own ideas. There's 600 guys hiding in a cave. How's the tribe of Benjamin going to survive? We now find out in verse 7 that they've all made an oath not to give any of their daughters in marriage to the Benjaminite tribe. I mean, you can't break an oath, can you? They made an oath. That's that. We've backed ourselves into a right corner. What's the solution? Well, they've made another oath that if anyone didn't turn up to the meeting, they would basically have thunder and lightning and fire and brimstone falling on the head. That would be a great way to get people to come to church, wouldn't it? If anyone doesn't come to church, we're going to stone them. That, that's basically what they say in this chapter. And they suddenly realise, hang on a minute, there was a clan who didn't turn up for this meeting. Let's go and stone a lot of them but spare the wives and then we'll give their wives to the Benjaminites. And so quite a few thousand men go off. 12,000 fighting men go off to Jabez Gilead and slaughter everyone except a woman who is a virgin. And oh, shucks, they didn't know because they hadn't done a census. They only had 400. What a shame. There's 600 blobs, they slaughter the whole clan, and they only get 400. How disappointing is that? So they have to have another meeting to come up with another option. Then they decide, let's go to the Shiloh, where the, dance, the girls are dancing as part of the feast, and tell the other 200 men to hide in the field, and jump out, and abduct them, and snatch them off, and then we'll have 600 wires for the 600 bedroom. What planet are these guys on? They're that this whole thing started with one woman being brutally raped and murdered the, the Israelites end up with 600 women being forcibly repatriated and married to men that they didn't want to be married to you couldn't make it up what is striking is the way they make a vow and then they break that vow by making another more stupid one all the while kidding themselves that they're being honourable and Lord abiding. Listen, what, what we're meant to see here, I think, is the way that sin just builds on itself. Sin is stupid. We do one thing wrong and then we try to fix it and it makes it worse and worse and worse. <coughs> we, we create solutions in our own wisdom that actually lead us further away from God we've seen then sorry we've seen then Israel here is just imploding relationally and morally the effects of that relational implosion 
is helplessness, self-deception, blaming other people and a lack of ability to see things clearly so that sin escalates. You've got the, you've got the plot line there. Three chapters, we've done okay, haven't we? I said I didn't want to ruin your day though. Let me turn you to hope. This, I can, this, these chapters have moved me to tears this week. But in a different way, they, they have made my heart sore. Let me share with you why. This book ends with the same refrain that we've seen the last couple of weeks. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Israel has become Canaan. But do you know what's remarkable about this story? The fact that God is not finished with them. In the face of their stupidity, God himself is at work in the background to bring his good purposes to fruition we called this series fallen people faithful God one writer says this the book of Judges ends with a miracle how is it that after chapters 19 to 21 indeed after chapters 1 to 21 how can you account for the fact that there even still is an Israel? It can only be because Yahweh wished to dwell in the midst of his people in spite of their sin. It can only be, listen to this quote, it can only be because Yahweh's grace is far more tenacious than his people's depravity and it insists on holding them fast even in their sinfulness and stupidity the grace of God is more tenacious than our depravity the author of Judges suggests that we need a king I want to suggest to you that we need a king who comes to us without us asking him to come. Because actually, in and of ourselves, we would never go looking for him. We also need a king that will do everything for us. Because in the end, we don't contribute anything apart from more problems. We also need a king who is able to take away our guilt and give us new hearts. We need a king who can successfully do what Israel never could and that we can't do, which is to drive out Canaan from our bloodstreams. He, Jesus, is the true Israel. He is the brush that sweeps he is the light that dries out the darkness. He is the clean, refreshing water 
that replaces the sludge. He's the antidote for the poison of selfishness and sin. We don't deserve him. We never asked for him. But he has indeed come to lavish his kindness on rebels like us who don't deserve anything. Here is the hope for all humanity and for you. A saviour who loves the loveless, who forgives the guilty, who transforms the hell-bent and whose grace is even more tenacious than our own depravity. Amen. Amen.